0: Come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray now that you would uh, enable us to see that which is true, that which you've done, and it would be impressed upon our minds and hearts uh, so that we would know that you're God. And uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to First Kings in chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18, please. I'm going to read the first uh, 42 verses of this passage. It's a long one, so I'll kind of break it up a bit and just make sure that we're all hearing what's, what's going on. So, 1 Kings chapter 18, in verse 1, hear the word of God. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, remember, in ancient Israel, Israel split. We're in the northern tribes. Ahab is king, Elijah the prophet. You remember that Ahab is a wicked king. He's moved the, the whole nation into idolatry. He's merged as much as he possibly can. God Jehovah with uh, this God Baal, which is uh, really uh, all kinds of gods on the earth that provide and, and protect and, 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 and bring prosperity. So, so that's this merger that's taken place, this synchronization that's taken place in Israel, and, and because of that, Elijah the prophet has come and brought a word of judgment Uh, to Ahab and the nation saying that it wasn't going to rain. That was a a, um, part of the judgment of God, sort of the curse of the law for being idolatrous. And so now's the time Elijah brings it so it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Think about that. So, verse two. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Samaria, just a word for these northern tribes and and, 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 uh, that Israel... In those days, and there was a famine, obviously, it hadn't rained for three years, three and a half years. And Ahab called Obadiah, it's not the same Obadiah that comes later as a prophet, but this is just a guy, Obadiah. Now, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household, that is, he was the, sort of the chief of staff for Ahab. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So we get the kind of sense of the kind of faithful man that Obadiah was. Think about the fact that here's a faithful man working for this wicked king. Some of you may relate to that. Verse 5, and Ahab said to Obadiah, Uh, Go uh, through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. It tells you what kind of man Ahab was. We never get a sense that he was concerned about the people, but he didn't want to lose his livestock. Verse 6, so they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself, so they split. Verse 7, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, that he there is Obadiah, and Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. So Obadiah is saying, listen, he's been searching you. And every time he hears that you're someplace, he goes there and you're not there. And so then he takes an oath out against that nation. They become his enemy. Verse 11. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. In other words, Obadiah is saying, I know your reputation. I'm going to tell him where you are, and poof, you'll be gone. And then he'll kill me, because he won't find you. Um, Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, <clears throat> how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's Prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And so he says, it's, "I'm not the troubler. It's your fault, Ahab, because of where you've led the people into idolatry." Verse 19. Now, therefore, send another. Send and gather. Sorry, now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of, uh, of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he says, I want you to gather the people, and I want you to gather these 850 prophets. So he's setting something up, here it is, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. So this is the, this is the whole setup, he's saying, Who are we going to follow here? That's been the message really through the Old Testament up until this point. Who are we going to follow, God or not? And the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it t- into pieces, and lay it on the, on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So you get the picture. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God. But put no fire to it. And they they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Notice there. There had been an altar to the Lord there. There was two altars because that was sort of the way Ahab had gone about things. Baal and God Jehovah, if you will. So, so one altar to Baal. But, but this altar to God had, had, had sort of fallen by the wayside. I mean, and it wasn't used, and so he had to repair it. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the, the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two shears of seed. So you just imagine this trench around it a bit of a moat, and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. You may wonder where they would get the water during a famine and during a drought. Well, they were right next to the Mediterranean Sea, so no doubt they were able to get it From there, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed The burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. And let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon. And slaughtered them there. Obviously. A dramatic event. I hope. That You were picturing that in some way in your mind as it, as it was happening and you saw it. It um, begins, however, uh, with a reality check. And I, I say that uh, because, as I mentioned last Sunday, one of the difficulties of, of taking a, a narrative passage like this is interpreting it and applying it. And the reality, reality check is the presence of Obadiah. And I say that because, because we think, when, at least I do, when I read this story that what it's there so that God can say to me, Bill, you need to be like Elijah. But Obadiah is there. Because we read this and we think that Elijah is the only important person in all of Israel during that time. But Obadiah is there. I mean, God had called him to a, a, a vocation, uh, he had risen to being the head of the household, if you will, of, of the king, so sort of chief of staff, if you will, in, in that place, and there he was, serving and working, just, just like we do. He wasn't a prophet. He didn't go to prophet college. Uh, he, he didn't, uh, you know, graduate from the, from the best prophet school or any of that. He was, he was just a guy who, who, who had a job, and it was a good job, and he had a job, and, and just like we have jobs, and so, so this isn't about Elijah so much, is it? It's it's not that we're to be like him. Now, the the New Testament writer James says that Elijah's just like us in the sense that he has a nature just like us, which means he's just a guy, he's just a man. And he's a man who's been saved by grace through faith, right? Just like us. And James' point is that, that Elijah prayed and God responded. And thus, we can know too that we can pray and God will respond. But it isn't that we're to be of his, Elijah's personality, or be that brash, or be that in somebody's face necessarily. You get the sense that Obadiah was a rather quiet sort, one, one who hid the prophets of God so that they would be uh, protected and, and they could live during this time when the prophets were being killed. But, but this sort of reality check, it sort of brings us back home, that this isn't all bells and whistles, that real life is happening, and, the, and there are faithful people to God in the midst of all this Elijah has a special calling, and what's that? That special calling here is to bring this confrontation so that we would know that God is God. You see, this is really about God. We, We really read this, and we should be asking the question, what does it really say about God? Now, what does this say about Elijah? That's kind of a fun, interesting thing to think about. But that's really not the point. At the end of the day, it's not about Elijah. It's about God. And so, so that's really it. And even Elijah lays that out to the people in verse 21. As he sets all of this up, he lays out the purpose. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. You, know, you get this sense where he's saying, don't, don't, you can't combine the two. Sort of make up your minds here. Because if you don't, you're simply going to limp. And that little word limp is a difficult one, I've been told, to translate. Literally it sort of means to hesitate or to step around. It can be used all the way from limping as we see it here, as you might imagine that, to dancing. I suppose it was defined after someone saw me dance. <laughs> okay, I don't dance. But, but, but if I did, they would call it limping, I'm sure. But, 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 but that kind of, kind of thing. So it, it's all of that. It's, it's sort of like, you know, these sort of funny little steps. But, but, but what it means, too, one of the nuances of this word is that one limps to the point where one falls on one's face. Not, not to worship but falls in the sense of tragedy, in the sense of destruction. And he says, you're simply limping between two opinions. The end result of this is you're just going to fall. You're just going to be destroyed. So, 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 so you need to deal with this. There is to be no neutrality here, right? And, and we see this, that God reveals himself so that we would know that he is God. He, he reveals himself through creation, that we would know that, he's, that he really is God. But we miss that point. And you know, the scripture says that we suppress this truth because of our own unrighteousness. And so he not only gives us this, this natural or what we call general revelation through, through creation, but he also gives us a special revelation through the written word and ultimately through the coming of Jesus. And this special revelation interprets all of that for us and says, this is what that means. This is how you are to understand creation. God did this. And because God did this, therefore he owns us. And because he owns us, we're to submit to him. But but he's gracious and kind, and, 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 and thus we're to submit to him with great joy. See, he's the one we're to follow. As we've mentioned before, he's the one who, who really gives us purpose in life. He defines us, he directs us. And, and if we follow his the definition of our lives and his direction, it, it, it should be our delight, you see. That's the really joy of our heart. That, that's really what grips us. That should captivate us. And so even as he then then takes Abraham and he builds this nation, he does it so that they'll know and be able to communicate to the world that they'll know that God is God. I, I read this morning during our uh, time prior to our confession, to lead into our time of confession, this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 4, and, and again, as, as, as Moses summarizes all that's taken place and then gives a, a sort of a preview of what's coming, uh, he, he lays it out. Why did all this happen? And he says, has anybody ever had a God like this? Has anybody ever had a God who creates? Anybody had, have a God who then takes one nation out of another nation and delivers them and saves them out of that and redeems them out? Anybody ever seen anything like that at all? Uh, notice how he puts it. Verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There's no other besides him. That's the point of it. He, he meets them at Sinai. and He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Thus have no other gods before me. I'm God, you see. What if the God could do that? Um, over and over he, 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 he teaches them who he is. The whole Red Sea thing. Right? Prior to that, the whole deliverance from Egypt thing. That shows that I'm God. Every one of those plagues shows that I'm God. There isn't another God in Egypt. I'm God. Don't worship the Nile. Nile. Don't worship the frogs. Don't, don't worship all of that. I'm God. Don't worship your firstborn. I'm God. And each turn. And, and so that you can know that and, and then that you'll, you'll follow You'll follow me. And so here we have it again. He's saying, listen, don't limp between two opinions. I want you to know that God is God. Follow him. That's what this is all about. This, This incident is to be burned in our minds so that when we doubt, if we doubt, when we doubt, we're to think, no, 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 no. This happened. This is real. God did this. Think about it. Let it play in your head over And over again. But that's the purpose of it. It's the purpose of it for that people at that time to know this. For the exiles who are reading this. These people have been exiled. They're wondering if they're ever going to get back to Jerusalem. Well, this is who your God is. Trust him. For us, this is who God really is gripping in your mind. This isn't, you know, we we love to take our children and they they color pictures, you know, of of this incident. And and it's wonderful. And they should do that. Why? To help imprint it on their minds. Isn't a children's story, thus just for children. It's real. We want our kids to know it, so that's how they relate to it. How do we relate to it? We think about it. We allow it to be impressed upon our minds. So, so this is the situation that, that he lays out for us. He says, Don't just limp between these, these two opinions, because you see, that the realization that God is God dealing with that is huge. It's just huge, because you see, once. We come to grips with the fact that God is God, or as we would put it, Jesus is Lord, then it messes with everything. It's just one of those facts that messes with everything in our lives. For instance, if you find out that somebody else has cancer, you can ignore it. But you know, if you find out you have cancer, it messes with you can't ignore that right you find out that there's a tornado that hit over here well, well you can ignore that but when that tornado comes down your street it messes with you you can't ignore that you can find out that somebody else is in love with someone but when you're in love <laughs> it messes with you you can't ignore that is the reality to you and when we find out that god is god that really is god and god is god, and what he's like, it messes with us. It, it, it shakes us to the very core of our being. Because we realize that if God is God, if there is God and God, this God is God, then, then, then it, it gets right at the core of who we are. Once we recognize that, and we ask this God, who am I? You made me, who am I? How am I to live? What am I responsible for? What are the consequences Of not following you? what are the blessings of following you? What does all of this really mean? You see, it gets right down to it. Because at our very guts, all of us, Christians or not, all of us are worshipers. We're all worshipers. There's always something out there that tells us who we are. It might come from our insides. It might come from out of us. There's always that which says, this is who you are. This is how you're to live. This is what life really is. And you see, as we embrace that, as we follow that, as we believe that, and that's what we worship. That's God to us. So as we said before, however you want to delineate these things, whether it's our possessions that, that give us joy, that we live for, that we that we order our lives around, or whether it's prestige or whether it's power and control, or whether it's our own passions, whatever that happens to be. All of the above in some measure, I'm sure. We're so easily attracted to these things. They're so easily led by them. So easily we allow them to define us and direct us. And we think that if we don't have them, if that's not true for us, then there's, there's really no sense of life at all. See, We all worship. This incident takes place. as all the other incidents in the life of ancient Israel, and all that comes to us, God is saying, "I'm God. I'm God. Follow me. I'm God. Believe me." you see I'm God. Find your delight in the things that delight me. Find your, your joy in me, in knowing me. And so this incident uh, comes about. For us, the challenge, it's an interesting challenge. It's all set up in Baal's favor. I mean, just just as naturally speaking, as we look at it first and foremost, you know, they they have way more prophets. They have 850 prophets, we have Elijah. They have the king, we don't have anybody. And so, all that stacked in Baal. They're on Mount Carmel, which is, which is like Balesville. I mean, it, it's like the place that Bale was, was, was strongest and, and worshipped. In fact, Mount Carmel was known by some in the area as sort of Baal's Bluff, if you will, or, or this is Bale's Hill, Bale's Mountain. This, this is where Bale is, and so, so it's it staged, it staged there you see. And it's about fire. Now, God, Jehovah, is known for fire, but, but, but Baal was really known for fire. In fact, he was depicted by artists as having a lightning bolt in his right hand. And so, so if anybody can make this thing go, shouldn't it be this, this, this Baal? So it's all stacked there. And then, of course, Elijah makes it more difficult, if we could say it that way, for God by, by pouring water all over this sacrifice. Drenching it. And, and it's clear, not one time, not two, but three times. And so so the runoff fills this little moat around it and all of that. So as you get the picture here of it's all set up in Baal's favor. If Baal can do it, then then but notice what happens. The people begin to to pray to Baal to, to make it rain. You say, Well, why didn't? Why didn't Elijah just stand up and pray and say, Let it rain? And have the rains come. Wouldn't that have solved the whole problem? Wouldn't they have said God is God? You know us. There would have been some in the crowd that have said, Ha, way to go, Baal. It's raining. We've been praying for three and a half years for this. (laughs) Oh, it finally happened. They would have ignored Elijah all all together. Uh, So somehow Baal had to be exposed. It doesn't always happen, you see. God doesn't always intrude in time for us to see this moment. He did intrude at that moment and said, look, this is who I am. I'm going to expose all of these idols in their life and in yours, and we am going to show you that they're nothing. They're no thing at all. So, of course, they, be, they began to pray and, uh, and, and, and they went from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And then, playing on this word, um, and they limped around the altar. If you have an NIV, it says they danced around the altar. That's the nuance here. That's what we're getting. But, but, but since it's the same word, well, we get a, a different sense They're limping here, dancing, yes, trying to get Baal to do stuff, but we know that really they're just sort of falling over each other. They're falling on their face. Nothing is really happening here. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Come on, just keep after it. Just maybe louder, see. Maybe if you go louder, he'll he'll hear you. And, And then he said, Either he 's musing that he's, he's thinking about something else he has something more important on his mind right now. Just keep after him you know you 'll get him in a minute or he's relieving himself and you say really he, that's what he said, except a little more dramatic than we have it in the English, but don't go there at the minute right? uh, or he 's on a journey that he's somewhere else and he you know, he 's just, he's just gone for a minute he'll be, you know, he'll be back later. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. All the things, you only imagine how grating that would have been in the midst of this situation to hear somebody mock you as you're trying to, to get your God to perform, to do something. You see, there's a sense in which they really did think they would be heard for their many words. They really did think they'd be heard for their for their, their loudness or their dancing or whatever it is, that they could just do enough, perform enough that their idol would satisfy them. And then notice this. And then they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. You picture that. And I think there's something there for us. It says, you know, idols, false gods that we set up, that we try to satisfy They'll only take our lives. They'll suck the very life out of us. And they'll never satisfy. They'll they'll ultimately kill us. If we seek after these things and, and we believe that they're going to satisfy us, they won't. They can't. All they can do is take our lives because you see, it just gets worse and worse and we just keep investing more and more in all this stuff and all these things and all these ways that aren't really God and we think this will satisfy me. Oh, if I give a little more, if I give a little more, if I perform a little better, oh, if I say a little more things, if, if I, like, like This never does, you see. And we limp and we fall and they destroy us, you see. As midday passed, they raved on until, there was, until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, Come. Now, notice how understated Elijah is after he wets all the, all the uh, wood and, and the offering and all of that. Verse 36 he said, At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you're God in Israel, that I'm your servant, that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are, O Lord, that you're God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That was it. No dancing, not lots of words. No great, in a sense, trying to get God in, his debt, trying to make God do something, jump through some hoop, he just asked. That was it. Remember Jesus, when he was teaching us to pray, he said, don't think that you'll be heard because of your many words. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't have long prayers at times. But, But we mustn't think that if we simply pile words upon words upon words, that somehow we'll break through to God. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask for the same thing again and again and again. And, but that doesn't mean that there's a quota that if you ask 73 times, oh, finally you'll get that. But, but this other thing takes 97 times. no, no, no. Isn't that at all? You remember Jesus was speaking a parable. He said there was a Pharisee, this religious leader, who was full of himself. And he thought that he had done everything right. And so when he stood before God He listed all the things he had done right. And he listed all those things he had done right to show off, yes, but also thinking, well, surely, since I've done all this, God will do that. You see? Surely, if if I've spoken long enough, or if I've fasted, or if I've given, or if I've done this or done that, even if I've cut myself, surely God will see how how sincere I am, how how righteous I am, how important this is to me. and, And surely he'll do it. what moves the heart of God, that sinner who was in the temple that day too. And he said, God, I don't deserve anything from you. Please have mercy upon me. I'm the sinner. Well, Here's Elijah and he simply says it. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we can't have emotion when we pray or emotion when we worship. It doesn't mean that we can't um, you know, sing and dance and cry, we can do all that, but, but, but none of that, you see, those emotions, none of that tugs, none of that forces God into a position, you see, if it's a response to who he is, then good, but it isn't so that he'll jump through our hoops, he's, he's God, he's when you know that, hmm. He says, you know, if you have these things before you, these other gods before me, you see they'll just suck the life out of you. Huh. They'll just suck the life out of you. So don't allow your possessions to govern your life. Because when we see our possessions, what we should be is thankful. Right? We should say, oh, no, we should be thankful. This came from, from God. You see. When others think well of us, we should be surprised. And we say, "Thank you, God." You say, "I, I know myself." <laughs> so God, thank you for that affirmation, that blessing. But we really know deep down that it's God at work in us. If any good thing has, if any good thing is coming. And our passions, we we know that they can deceive us. So we take our passions, we take our desires, and we lay them at the feet of God, and we say, organize these, transform these. Show me what I should love, what I should hate. Work that in me. And if our passions, then, are ever righteous and good, we give thanks to God. Yes, this came from from Him, right? And we know we haven't any power or control. (laughs) We know the very slightest change in anything can be our demise. We know that we trust God's power in all of that. Anything else just simply sucks the very life out of us. This story that took place, this incident that took place, that's recorded in 1 Kings at Mount Carmel. We, we know, wow, what a dramatic event. Here it was, this, these prophets of Baal and this God Baal uh, all of that completely humiliated in the very presence of God. And, and thus the people could say, oh yes, we get it now. God, you are God. And, and, and we'll turn towards you. We'll trust. We'll believe you. And, and yet, they still fell away. But but here we have an event <laughs> It takes place in history. Where all of our idols, the God of this world, Satan himself, is utterly humiliated. Put to shame, as the scripture says. Uh, he, it's all set up, in a sense, for Satan to win. Everybody runs from Jesus. Even his best friends deny him. There he is alone. Everything's stacked against Jesus. Everybody believes that which is even untrue about him, and, and thus he comes to be beaten and killed. But you see, it's in the midst of that moment, in the midst of that event, that the evil one is is put to shame. He's destroyed. And God comes to us and says, don't limp between two positions. Don't trust any other. If you thought what happened on Mount Carmel was dramatic, You should have seen what happened on Calvary. That was the drama of God. He crushed his own son. And you see, God being God, graciously doesn't demand our blood. He says, no, no, no. I'll give mine. I'll slash my son. I'll take his life that you may live. Trust me, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? (laughs) That he's Lord and there is no other. You know, the question that's put before us is, is there any God, small g, is there any God, that can really save you? Is there any God that can reconcile you to Himself? Is there any God that really cares? We can give ourselves for all of these things and they can answer back nothing ultimately. They can't save us. Why? Because this is what it takes. This is our sin. This one Christ who dies, raised that we might have life. And so you see, at this moment, we're to gaze from, move from Mount Carmel to the cross and say, wow. Right? Wow. The Lord is God. There is no other. And we'll follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I pray for me and for us that we really would understand this. We really would see it. We really would believe it, God. That you're God, that there is no other. That there isn't anyone, anything to whom to which we could look, in whom of which we can trust, can deal with our real need, which is to be forgiven our sins. None of our possessions would could die for us. We have to die for them. We have no power really in and of ourselves to, to make this happen, nor does anyone else. We can't trust another. You're the only one with the power to do this so, Father, we pray that you would capture our minds and hearts, transform us in such a way that we would believe and trust and that we would yield ourselves to no other. So, Father, I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that though quieter, more subtle it seems to us, that you would impress upon us not simply what took place on Mount Carmel but you would impress upon us the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and that would grip us and of that we would say yes, of course Jesus is Lord So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would meet us here at this table and confirm to us what you have done and Strengthen in us faith. We might live in such a way that others would see our lives and glorify you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand their need, understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. You receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. You desire to live a life then consistent with that profession of faith, a life of repentance, a life of confession, a life of receiving, a life of believing. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, uh, dip it in the cup, and allow bells and whistles to go off in your head. Say yes, Jesus is Lord, there is no other. Please come.